Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hello, Channel Pros. Welcome to episode 25 of the Channel Journeys podcast, sponsored by Channel Journeys Consulting. I am Rob Spee, your host and founder of Channel Journeys Consulting, and I'm on a mission to help you accelerate growth and create powerful partner ecosystems. So this is episode 25. I guess that's our silver anniversary. Thank you so much for listening. If this is your first time listener, Welcome to the show. I hope you go back and listen to all the previous episodes. And if you've been listening for a while, thank you. I really appreciate it. We have another great episode today. I met my guest, Avanish Sahai, at the SAS Connect event a while back, where he gave a really interesting presentation where he talked about the 10 myths of platform ecosystems. Avanish knows more than a thing or two about application platforms and how to develop a powerful ecosystem of development partners. Among many other things, he was the global vice president of ISV and channel alliances at Salesforce, where he launched AppExchange and grew the business to over 2,000 applications and 2 million installs. He's also on the board of directors at HubSpot. You know, at HubSpot, development partners play a huge role in their growth. And now Avanish is applying his skills at ServiceNow. They are one of the fastest growing enterprise software companies in the world to build out an ecosystem of ISVs and technology partners. So if you're a SaaS vendor looking to accelerate growth through a developer channel or a partner looking to have custom development built on top of a SaaS platform to create those niche market solutions, well, this podcast is for you. There is a ton of valuable content. So let's just jump right in and get started with Avanish Sahai. Here we go. Avanish, good morning. Welcome to the Channel Journeys podcast. So great to have you on the show today. Rob, thank you. Delighted to be here. Look forward to it. Excellent. And where do we reach you? today? This morning, I am in Santa Clara, California. Out in Santa Clara. That's your headquarters there? That's right. In our headquarters for ServiceNow. All right. Excellent. And you're, you're actually from Brazil, aren't you? I am. So I am a bit of a weird background, which is I was born in India, but raised in Brazil since I was five. Uh, so pretty much all my education was there all the way through college. And then I came to the U.S. for grad school and never made it back. I do visit often. I was there three weeks ago. But never made it back full time. Well, I've always loved visiting Brazil on business and building channels down there. So I can I can practice my very limited Portuguese of bom dia. Bom dia, muito bom. That was for muito bom. Muito bom. <laughs> Tudo bem. <laughs> Excellent. Well, great. Maybe to get started, why don't we just first tell us what you do there at ServiceNow, your role? Sure. So I've been at ServiceNow about two and a half years. And just for everybody's background, ServiceNow is a cloud platform. We've been in business for about 15 years and have primarily focused on the IT and IT management space for the first 10 or so years of our existence. And for the past four or five years, started really expanding into other application areas and also building out a platform ecosystem. And that is what I am building and running is a ecosystem of partners that either integrate to our applications And those are in IT, HR, customer service, or partners that are actually building their applications on top of our platform and leveraging all of our investment and innovation 
to build their own applications around workflow and workflow-based applications. That's really our business. You know, I first became aware of ServiceNow. It was a scrappy startup back when I was at BMC Software. And I remember thinking, well, who, is these, who are these guys? What are they doing? This is a totally different model of what they're introducing. Now you guys have probably eclipsed BMC in revenue. How would you describe ServiceNow's overall channel strategy and, and how important has that been to the growth and success of the company? Yeah, so ServiceNow is, is one of those companies that frankly has been somewhat under the radar and a lot of people didn't know us, didn't know about us. And even our CEO, John Donahoe, sometimes says we are a well-kept secret. And the reality is we've, I think, focused on, on a few things. One, innovation, right? How do we drive innovation? How do we leverage things like the cloud, like mobile, et cetera, to really drive great customer experiences and productivity, right? So that's first and foremost, I think, mm -hmm. one of the reasons for success. Another one is, is frankly focusing on customer success and business outcomes, right? The market has changed, the expectations of not just the C-suite, but across the organization is, hey, is this delivering value? Am I getting the value that I, that I was promised? And as part of that, a big part of our strategy really has been to work with a range of partners, going from the very, very large global SIs to regional players, to specialists, to technology partners. And each of those really plays a role in both driving that innovation, understanding the customer's business requirements, and then ultimately delivering the outcomes. So it has been a, a concerted strategy that is very core to our growth. And, and frankly, we wouldn't be here without a, our partner ecosystem, and much less can we grow to the aspirations that we have without a very rich partner ecosystem and a channel ecosystem. So with those various partner types of resale partners, service partners, sales partners, when did the ISV partners who were actually developing applications on top of ServiceNow, the area that you're focused on, when did that start taking hold? Or was that also from the very beginning? No, great question. So that was actually not from the very beginning. And we, we actually really focused on building out our own applications for, for the, like I said earlier, for the first 10, 11 years of our, of our business. The ISV ecosystem really kicked off in earnest in some, sometime around 2016, so about three years ago. And that is when we both as a leadership team and as a business really focused on the building out our platform story, exposing it, and really building and delivering all the capabilities required to support ISV partners, right? So how do you package it? How do you go through a certification process? How to deliver it, their offerings through a marketplace, which is what we call the ServiceNow store. So all those elements were part of a really a concerted strategy to say, hey, as a platform, a big part of a platform strategy requires us to think about ISV partners, again, both to integrate with, as well as build on top of. So that has really kind of been the dual, the dual prong strategy that we followed for the last three years or so. And I assume that was a customer-driven strategy based on what you mentioned, customer success being a key factor for your company's success. And looking for partners who could help deliver more customized apps to your market? That's exactly right, right? So customers love, 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 love our platform and want to do more with it. And part of doing more with it is saying, hey, there are unique aspects of my business, either at an industry level or a functional level, even at a geography level, that requires a different set of skills 
that we may have in-house, right? So like I said earlier, we're focused on IT. We're focused on the employee experience uh, in HR. We're focused on customer service. But there's a slew of other applications that can leverage that same unaligned workflow platform that a set of customers may say, hey, I am, I really want to use a service on platform, but the problem is X and I need someone to go solve problem X. And that is where our partner ecosystem comes in. Both traditional ISVs are going to build repeatable packaged software running on our platform that they're selling as a subscription. Or we'll also have some of our services partners who are actually going to make the build those as custom applications on a one-off basis. And then we also recently launched a service provider partner program where MSPs and BPOs and others can leverage that same underlying platform and also deliver their innovation on top of that. So we have multiple routes to market to work with our partners. There are, and I think this particular route of having partners who turn into really developers on your on your product as a platform or additional software, they're creating their own IP. The partners are very interested in this to up their value and attractiveness to their client base. And many, many vendors are looking at this as a new route to market and are curious how to build out a, a marketplace or a, a partner platform ecosystem. Now, you gave a really interesting presentation at the SaaS Connect where you and I met recently, and it was on the 10 myths of platform ecosystems. And I, you covered a lot of it, really interesting points. I wanted to ask you about some of those on our call and, and dive a little bit deeper into a few of those 10 myths. Absolutely. Love to, love to talk more about those. Okay. So the first one you mentioned was vendors want to copy their partner's apps as a myth out there. Yeah, that is often a perception that those of us who are building platform ecosystems look to the partners as a, a source of ideas, and then we can, we'll turn around and do the same. Truly, it's not the case. And I've now, this is my second major ecosystem play. I also helped launch and build the app exchange program at Salesforce and now doing the same thing here at ServiceNow. And really what we're looking for is to encapsulate and package our partner's IP and bring it to a broader set of use cases and customers. So our goal is really to, as a platform company, is to enable our partners, help them both build faster, leverage our, our platform innovation, Ultimately, they have very specific domain expertise that we and our customers want to see coming into our platform. So for us, it is very much a driving that, that joint innovation and delivering greater customer outcomes and better customer outcomes. So that is why I call that a myth, because I, I feel like it's, sometimes it's a perception, but it's not the reality. We really, as platform vendors, we want our partner ecosystem to be very rich and very successful. Yeah, I don't think any vendors are going into this. Well, I certainly hope not, uh, thinking that they're going to be able to steal their partner's IP, for example, by getting partners to develop those apps. But is it is that still a perception you run into partners? They're hesitant to, to build on your platform because they think maybe a vendor might want to take their IP? You know, sometimes, yes. Sometimes all it takes is having a the right kind of conversation with the senior leadership team of the partner. Once we walk through what our strategy is, what our vision is, and frankly, we were very clear about that. I think it, it gets, the problem goes away pretty quickly. But yes, sometimes coming into a conversation, that may be a perception. Another myth that you mentioned is that it's a winner take all in any given category. Yeah. So here, the, the premise of this one is 
if someone can come, if a if an ISV comes into a space and they're they have a a leading market share, that there is no room for anybody else. And I would argue that that's not true, right? That's why I call it a myth as well. In any particular category, there's going to be multiple vendors. They're going to have different paces of innovation. They're going to perhaps target different market segments. They may have a different angles to address a particular problem. So I don't believe that it's a winner-take-all space. I think if a market is available and proven, then there will be multiple vendors. And those multiple vendors may live on the same platform. They may live on different platforms. Ultimately, if the market is substantially large and the set of problems are distinctive enough, then there will be multiple companies that will build very successful businesses around that space. So what, what I try to make sure is I urge folks to think about what is going to be their distinctiveness and their competitive advantage, but ultimately there will be multiple vendors in a particular sizable space. How do you look at it as a vendor when you have given category, maybe an IT service management for, I don't know, pharmaceutical companies, less than 250 million in revenue, whatever the category might be. Do you try to guide partners? If you already have a couple partners developing apps in that particular niche, do you try to guide partners to go in a different direction? Well, it is really a, a combination of a business strategy and again, uniqueness, right? So we try to be protect our partner's confidentiality. So if a particular partner is building something in one space and has not launched it and it's not available, we're not going to talk about that to another partner, right? Right. However, what we want to make sure is we sit down with every partner, particularly at the, in the C-suite of the, the partners, and think through and talk through what is their business strategy? What are they fairly good at? What segments? What industries? Et cetera. And with that, I think we, we have a, a candid, truly a partnership conversation about what are the vectors of growth and how can we help them, therefore, with go-to-market, with obviously with a platform and so on. So that's what leads to typically there being nuances and differentiation among partners. And therefore, even if there is, a, like I said earlier, even if there is a partner addressing a particular space, if that space is big enough, if that space is differentiated enough, probably there will be multiple partners going after that. And that's perfectly fine because mm -hmm. we actually think from a market perspective that customers should have choices, right? Yeah. And that helps drive those choices. Okay. The next one you mentioned, I think this was a big one. If you build it, they will come. <laughs> this is the thought probably of a lot of partners as well as vendors who think if they build a marketplace, people will just automatically come and start buying from it. Yeah, no, that is a, that is a, one of the ones, those that I think I, I did use that field of dreams analogy there, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, you, you put up your shingle, you put a listing on a marketplace and then the rest happens by itself. That is not the case, right? We're we're not, and certainly we're talking here about the business application space. This is not your consumer app store, right? Here, you need to put a lot of wood behind the arrow from a marketing perspective, from a sales perspective, from a customer support perspective, from a customer success perspective. So I would look at the marketplace listing as just one element of the marketing mix. It can help create awareness. It can help maybe create some leads but it's really one piece of it. And a true software company is going to have a thoughtful go-to-market plan, right? What is their marketing plan? What is their engagement model? What is their budget, et cetera? And that's where if you build it, they will come is not how it works, right? You have to really put in place the resources, the sales team, whether it's an inside sales team, an inside sales team plus a field sales team, they need to be supported with 
marketing and marketing activities and, and lead generation activities that then leads into a process where the customer can try, they can install something, they can experiment with it. But ultimately, again, if you're selling into a mid-market or higher market segment, you will have to engage. You'll have to have kind of hands, hands-on engagement. And that process cannot be automated in my, in my book. How much support do you think the vendor ought to provide the partners that are developing on the platform, perhaps in form of MDF funds, you know, other ways that they can support the partner in, in marketing that, their solution? Yeah, that's one of the areas that personally, Rob, I believe is one of the most critical elements of that enablement and support, right? Which is there's certainly the the core, what we call the build motion, right? The platform itself, but then bringing it to market and thinking about both the marketing and sales aspects of it, whether through co-marketing funds, as you mentioned, or through other venues. So just as an example, here at ServiceNow, we have a big customer event is called Knowledge. It just happened a couple of weeks ago. And then we have regional events in different locations around the world. You know, we want our partners to be exposed to our customers. So putting together an overall plan and enabling them to be sponsors and exhibitors and so on at these events kind of helps drive that awareness, drives that alignment, right? So I think a core part of a of a platform vendor or a core role of the platform vendor is really to help figure that whole marketing mix out. And it could be kind of higher level awareness building. It could be very targeted, you know, doing very targeted events for a particular persona in a particular geography in an industry, right? So the whole range is part of what we sit down with our partners and help figure out their go-to-market plan. How much sales support do your partners get, your developer partners? Are your reps out there talking about their their individual applications as well? Yeah, the honest answer to that is there is some of that, but it is one of those where some partners are very good at you know, going at it on their own and have their own teams and their, their own infrastructure, et cetera. Others really would love for our reps to introduce them. But remember, we are not able to, frankly, with the number of partners we have, the number of applications we have, it's unfair to ask our reps and our SCs to remember all the hundreds of partners and partner apps that we have, right? So what we try to do is educate our our field organization about our marketplace and really understand a few of the applications, understand a few of the use cases, a few of the success stories, but ultimately really help drive the customer to make their own assessments and their own evaluations. And then perhaps when there's a short list, help guide them towards, you know, pros and cons of different partners and so on. But it is a, it is a process which requires both the customer and our team to align and make sure they understand what are the next set of problems that they're trying to solve. And therefore, how can they best leverage both the, the sales team, the marketplace, and then a whole bunch of other resources that we provide as well. Yeah. So I think the summary there is it's the partner should really take ownership in terms of marketing and selling their individual solution. They're going to get some support and lift from the vendor, but they've got a, their business plan should include their own sales and marketing support to make it happen. Absolutely. Uh, completely. That is ultimately they are, we want to see them be successful independently. And that requires having that infrastructure, that those processes, those the content, et cetera, in place. And let's also be, be, be fair, right? The partner knows their offering and the space and the problem they're solving better than anybody else. So that depth of expertise and knowledge is critical. And that is what the partner needs to package to kind of really make their offering 
stand head and shoulders above the above the others. Yeah, and that's why you want them as a partner in the first place for that expertise that they're they're building into their solution. You got it. it comes full circle, right? Yeah, exactly right. All right. So another one you mentioned was that partners think they're charged a tax to be on the platform. I'm not sure if I captured that one right. Was that what you were saying? Yeah, there's, I think, again, most of us who've built these kind of programs, we put in place some form of a revenue share model, right? And the revenue share really is is doing a few different things. Mm-hmm. One, it's helping, obviously, fund the program, fund the resources to the team to manage partners and so on, right? Two, it's frankly, it's also as a platform vendor, we do incur costs. We incur costs in running the partner's applications, connecting the APIs. Uh, those things are not for free. So the, the revenue share, and it varies by partner program, but you know, it's in the somewhere in the 15 to 25% range for most partner programs. That is really helping build the ecosystem. And sometimes again, in, in first meetings, you'll hear, well, that sounds like a tax. Well, it is not a tax, right? It is really, on the one hand, we as a platform vendor are investing in building that platform, the infrastructure, the ecosystem, et cetera. And those resources help us fund that, number one. Number two, frankly, a lot of the value we bring is access to our customer base. So we also use those resources to do things like retiring quota for field reps, right? So once they've made an introduction and they've, they've connected the dots, we want to remove conflict. And that is one of the ways we can help fund that is through that revenue share. That's why I want to I try to call it out is it's not a tax from the sense of, hey, just for the access, it is funding all the initiatives and programs and the team alignment that we're putting in place. Yeah, there's absolutely a cost to the vendor to put that all together. And I think that's pretty reasonable to expect that. I'm curious that 15 to 20%, is that, does that also give the partner and then the customer access to ServiceNow or is the ServiceNow subscription separate from that? Yeah, so we have a few different models. So speaking for ServiceNow specifically, we have one model, which we call the, the store model. And that one customer basically is a ServiceNow customer. Okay. And in their ServiceNow instance, then they can attach additional applications from our store, right? And that is a, that's a 20% rev share for our, for our partner ecosystem. Okay. We also have a model called the OEM model where the, where the end customer is not yet a ServiceNow customer. And we deploy a, uh, an instance of our platform for our partner's application for that specific customer. In that case, we actually have a 30% rev share. So slightly different models, uh, again, based on the cost we incur and so on. The, the idea is to address the different scenarios and make sure that the customer can leverage the partner's application no matter what. Okay, good. So a lot of flexibility, both for the partner and for the customer. That's right. All right. So the next myth that you mentioned, and you had several of these, and they were more around, I think, kind of the exit strategy. And a lot of partners, it seems, think that the only exit for them is, is selling to that vendor, the platform provider. Yeah, that's another one that often I think you end up spending some cycles and time talking to the partner and kind of helping them think through what what outcomes will look like, right? And it also often is a conversation with venture capitalists who are investors in those those partner companies. And my take on that is the following, right? As a platform, uh, whether it's us, whether it's Salesforce, whether it's Atlassian, whether it's AWS, et cetera, all of us are building these ecosystems because 
we really want our have a very robust, rich ecosystem, which addresses a range of problems through the leveraging through leveraging the platform, right? And the financial exits are going to happen uh, as long as the businesses that are being built on those are sustainable, they're high growth, they are differentiated, they are continuing to innovate, etc. So we've seen now a number of examples where companies built on platforms, uh, cloud-based platforms, or have gone public. You know, Viva is a great example of that on the Salesforce platform. Others have been acquired. So Spring CM is a good is also an example on the Salesforce platform in a contract lifecycle management space. Was recently acquired by DocuSign, for example. Right. So DocuSign is is running on its own stack. Has acquired a a company running on the Salesforce stack. Here at ServiceNow itself, we have a number of partners now who have received external funding. Companies like Novolo, Mobicord, and others. They're running, you know, they're running solid businesses with high differentiation. This happens to be running on our platform. So I think with more and more data examples, those issues are are diminishing. And and frankly, partners should be choosing the right platform for their business, right? The platform that gives them the fastest route to market, the most innovation, the most acceleration, etc. So that's really the, the fundamental business decision. The outcomes and the um, you know, the what the exits will how they will happen. That will that is not something you can predetermine. You know, Avinash, that reminds me of of a situation I was in in joining a startup a while back, and the the founder and CEO he was really intent on developing his own AI platform, which is a huge undertaking, and so we were working really hard to to raise capital. And I was pushing for the strategy. There were platforms just coming out at the time where we could develop on their platform, and I was really pushing for that strategy of building on that platform and at least as a way to get started and, and start building up our recognition and, and IP and value. But he was so hesitant because he was like, no, that's someone else's IP. I really want to build our own. But I, I think from what you're saying, that is a great strategy for many partners. Yeah. And again, you got to look at these things at a, at a few different levels, right? So let's look at the core infrastructure. Then let, let's, let's look at the services that are required to build applications. Then let's look at the application itself. Um, I think at the core infrastructure level, anybody who's trying to replicate that, it is obviously very, very high cost. And it is not something that necessarily is going to differentiate your offering, right? So trying to replicate either the AI play or the core infrastructure play is something that I, I would say is not the most efficient use of capital. However, leveraging what someone else has built at the infrastructure level, and then on top of that, bringing your, let's use the AI example again, your insights, your models, your unique way of looking at that, that then becomes something that can be very distinctive and you can get to market faster. So I'm with you, Rob, on that front, I think. And again, unless there's something super, super unique about how they're looking at that infrastructure, trying to replicate that is probably not the the best. No, it's not going to be the quickest or, or the cheapest route. That's for sure. Exactly. exactly. So you work with a variety of types of partners. What kind of trends are you seeing in the partner types that are coming to want to build apps? You know, if you look at the, you know, kind of typical reseller or MSP partner, are you seeing some shifts in the types of partners that are coming and want to build their own IP on top of ServiceNow? We are, in fact, and it's really a fun evolution of this kind of landscape. So let me give you a few examples of what we're seeing and kind of what kind of partners are kind of driving those. So one, as a broad category, we see a lot of vertical applications. So industry-specific apps where 
the partner has either because of unique insights or because they've seen a, a pattern. They say, hey, I think building an application for this particular space is something that's going to be repeatable and interesting, right? So Nouveau was an example in our ecosystem of a company that does that for the healthcare and medical ecosystem. And they're growing extremely fast. They're dominant, you know, they're getting really into some major, major accounts and they're very deep vertical expertise, right? So that's an ISV that sees a market opportunity and feels strongly that our platform is something that can help them build. Another example like that is a company called Factor 5 out of Australia that focuses on the higher education space. And they're, they're killing it initially in the Australian market and not planning on expanding globally, right? So different kind of use cases for different industries, but with deep, deep domain expertise. So that's one. A second trend we're seeing is that some of the larger global system integrators are thinking about how do they build applications alongside their core services business. So in fact, we just did a major announcement with Deloitte, the, the global consulting firm at Knowledge, where Deloitte is now going to be building a number of applications on the ServiceNow platform and bringing that to market as part of their overall offering. And they're using the ServiceNow platform as a way to tie it into their core services, but then either as part of a delivery process or even more so as part of a leave behind after the consulting engagement, the customer gets an application built and maintained by Deloitte and sold as a subscription service, right? So they really want to monetize their IP. Their insights could be both horizontal and vertical, but it is a, it's a trend that I'm, I'm noticing much more in the last few months in that these larger services companies really also want to build applications. Yeah, that's something I noticed too. When previously, when I was at SaaS and we had a, a developer program as well, we call it the managed analytics service provider program. And we were getting a lot of interest from the GSIs who wanted to, even though they had a lot of their own solutions, they wanted to partner and, and build out analytics solutions on the SaaS platform. Yeah, exactly. And, and just to complete the, the, the trifecta there is exactly to your point, service providers, both traditional MSPs focused on the IT space, as well as perhaps partners who are focused on other areas of expertise in HR and customer service and so on. That service provider ecosystem is also looking to build their application, their IP, and deliver that alongside our, our kind of core applications, if you would, in a service, service provider model, right? where they're delivering the technology and perhaps other adjacent services as well. So those are some of the trends we are seeing. And again, for, for ServiceNow, based on architecture and some of our unique aspects of that, it gives us a tremendous, tremendous market opportunity to help our partners grow. Yeah, it sure does. So how important do you think it is for startups, SaaS startups, to build APIs into their products, to, to come out of the gate as early as possible and start building up that developer platform? Yeah, I think in, in this day and age, I think the expectation of both the end customers and uh, the delivery partners and so on is you kind of have mm -hmm. to think that way, right? The, the approach of a closed, non-flexible offering, uh, those days are gone. So having a thoughtful strategy around both building, maintaining, growing the APIs is absolutely critical because you're not going to exist in a silo. You are going to be integrating to other forms of applications. The data exchange is, is critical. The workflow exchange is critical. So I think startups 
if at any stage we need to be thinking about that from from, mm -hmm. from so if you were launching service now today that would be one of the first things that you did absolutely and in fact in our case we 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 thought of we did do that from the get-go as well and it's helped us tremendously to this point so i would say absolutely yes You've done this now for ServiceNow. You you built out a, the App Exchange and, and ecosystem at, at uh, Salesforce. What big mistake do you think ISVs make when they're looking to launch a, a developer program? I think, I have to be careful I say this, but I think the ones that dabble are the ones that find themselves making a mistake. It's something that you really need mm -hmm. to commit to. And again, it requires resources it requires enablement materials it requires obviously on the product side itself ensuring that for every release this is something that's part of the of the uh, development and the launch process so the folks who've done it well are the ones who make this core to their business the folks who i think have made mistakes in quotes are the ones who kind of dabble in it and think of it as a bit of a check the box exercise but don't really commit to it i assume of a niche that just like any channel program, it requires first that executive commitment at the CEO and board level that you're going to go after this as a strategy. And, and secondly, alignment up and down the organization, that this is a, a key element of your channel strategy. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And, and certainly in the experiences I've had, both building this out at uh, Salesforce and ServiceNow, and I'm also on the board of HubSpot, which is also doing something similar in the SMB, more of the marketing and, and sales ecosystem. That is exactly what has happened, right? Which is C-level and board-level alignment, that this is an important part of the strategy, it's an important part of the story, and then putting in place the resources, the programs, et cetera. Yeah, this has been a huge element of HubSpot's success, hasn't it? Their whole developer platform with working with marketing agencies. Absolutely. It has helped them scale substantially. And, and frankly, their partner ecosystem absolutely loves them because I think they've made the right decisions, the right commitments, and they also solicit a lot of feedback. So that helps them make sure that they're being very responsive to the, what the market needs. Well, a, a lot of interesting talk, and obviously you're very experienced and knowledgeable in these platform ecosystems, but I want to jump now to your own channel journey yourself. And you mentioned you were born in India, then grew up in Sao Paulo, moved to the States. How did you get into this channel business in the first place? Yeah, no, it was, it's one of those where, um, I've, I've had a, a extensive journey in Silicon Valley. I uh, kind of started out in engineering and then product management at Oracle. Did a bit of a left turn and went into consulting at McKinsey for a number of years. Whereas part of that journey, I was actually helping build out McKinsey's software practice. And coming out of that in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I decided to kind of come back at an operating role, I was fascinated by both the ability to certainly to build innovative products and have the product background. But then from a route to market perspective, I've always thought that scale requires really building out the, the partner ecosystem in whichever way it makes sense. So since my first startup through to a few others, I tended to have a combination of product management, marketing, and business development under my, my purview. And that really exposed me to the, both the opportunity to, to work with the channel as a way to scale and, and both as a delivery partner and a sales partner, uh, but also really to open open doors that often are not otherwise open. So I've been exposed to that the, the channel route to market for you know, close to probably 20 years now. And then really the Salesforce opportunity in 2009 was the one that really 
kind of make me fully immerse into it and really think about that as a, a kind of a, a key component of a platform strategy. So that's been kind of my my journey through the past few years has been you know increasingly focused on how to how to make the, the channel partner ecosystem a more critical part. Well, that Salesforce experience, you obviously had a big impact there and, and they've, they're really the poster child. They're the ones we look to in terms of success in developing out that, that developer platform. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And again, uh, that was a key part of the strategy from the get-go from, from Mark Benioff and Parker Harris and others was, hey, ultimately to succeed, it requires both a technology partner ecosystem, which is really the app exchange, and a services partner ecosystem to help deliver and really drive greater alignment, greater engagement with, with clients. So that they're, they're certainly showing, showing broadly how, how effective. I know, Avanish, we both, we have one thing in common. We both went to business school at UCLA Anderson, and I think I was maybe a year ahead of you. But I don't really recall anyone talking about the channel back then, maybe in the four Ps of marketing. But there was very little discussion, and I was just out in California for the Channel Focus event, and I was chatting with my brother, who's a, a professor at a business school out there, a different one. And there, there isn't much discussion about Channel in his classes either. It seems that that still is a missing element of a lot of our education. You know, uh, Rob, I think there is, there's, a, there's a couple of elements to that. So I also recall that sales was never... That's true, yeah. Right? And and I've only half jokingly say, you know, we're always selling, right? We no matter what role we're in, you know, the process of connecting with someone, defining what your value proposition is, could be you as an individual in a recruiting process, could be you in a marketing role, could it certainly be you in a product role. Ultimately, until someone pays you some money for what you offer, n- nothing has happened. So only half jokingly I say, hey, sales is should be part of a curriculum. I still don't think that's part of a curriculum either. And then channels and, and ecosystems are, you know, even a level greater of complexity. But yes, I agree with you. That is something that's missing and something that I think a lot of people would benefit from. Yeah. Across industries, by the way. It's not, I think, I don't think it's just in tech. I think it applies across, uh, across categories and across industries. All right. One more personal question for you, Avanish. What do you enjoy doing outside of the channel? Well, um, so I have, I have a few different passions, but one that my family and I share two kids now, 21 and 19, both in college. But the one thing that we have found ourselves always enjoying is we absolutely love traveling. So collectively, we've visited over 40 countries and we try to make a new visit to a new country part of our plan for every year, in fact. And once we get there, kind of exploring the culture, the food, uh, the sights and sounds is something that we truly enjoy doing. So while I travel a lot for work, uh, I always look even more forward to the, the travels that we do as a family. That's awesome. And exposing your two kids to all the different cultures. Exactly right. Exactly right. And, and again, you mentioned my background, right? I have a, a bit of a diverse personal and cultural background. And I think ultimately that's what the world's about is we're all citizens of the world. And that kind of exposure helps people kind of connect in a, in a better way. You know, it's interesting. In my podcast interviews, that's a really common theme, the, the love for travel. And I guess being in channels, you got to love travel because it's, it's part of the job. You don't have a choice. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of people say the same thing, that they love taking their family around the world. Jay McBain, you know, Jay, he, he loves travel too. And he's done something similar. He had a goal for how many countries he wanted to visit and he, he keeps ticking off the list. 
and but not just visiting, but really get in and and understand yeah, yeah. and learn the culture too. That's right, exactly. No, I think it's, there's a lot of fun to it. That's excellent, Avanish. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about ecosystems or any other topic that you wish I would have mentioned? Well, and again, I think it's delightful to see you doing this kind of work, Rob. And I think helping others think about what their strategy should be and how does it encompass the channel in all its different forms as part of their scale. Just as we were just saying, you know, a couple of minutes ago, this is not something that's easily taught, mm-hmm. but it's also not rocket science, right? So I think having the exposure and having different voices come to the table and talk about, you know, the experiences, the goods and the bads, ultimately, I think it helps everybody else. So thank you for doing some phenomenal work. Oh, you're welcome, Avanish. And thank you for sharing what you've learned. And we've all kind of learned from the School of Hard Knocks because it's not taught in that Channel 101 course. So great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. One course. So great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Hey, guys, I don't know about you, but I am really stoked about all the opportunities for partners to develop custom applications on top of vendor software. Big shout out to Avanish for sharing his experience and some hugely valuable thoughts on platforms and developer partner ecosystems. As he talks about, there are many misperceptions on platforms and development opportunities held by both partners and vendors. And we just dispelled some of those common myths and highlighted the vast opportunities for vendors and their partners to develop higher value to their customers through customized software and services. Avanish highlighted another very common theme on this show, and that is the added value of partners to focus on a niche in the market with really deep domain expertise and to build custom apps on a SaaS vendor's platform. Partners want to have their own IP, and this is a tremendous way to do it. As always, you can find more takeaways and show notes for this podcast on my website at channeljourneys.com backslash CJ25. While you're there, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and not miss a single episode. You don't want to miss next week's episode. I've got Bryn Jones. He's the CEO of an innovative channel tech startup called PartnerStack that is really shaking things up. They are tackling the challenge of managing multiple types of partner programs and partner payouts all on one platform. So don't miss that next week. Until then, have yourself an awesome channel journey. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends and be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.